Father, thank you for the wondrous ringing anthem of victory in Jesus and the power of the cross and forgiveness in Christ alone. May that good news, the message of the gospel, ring true today and transform our lives. In the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray and all God's people said, amen. In 1996, the NBA, that's the National Basketball Association, had its 50th anniversary. And to celebrate it, they decided that they would put together a list of the top 50 basketball players of all time. Now, to me, it seems like a rather easy chore. I think number one should be Michael Jordan. But being from Lansing, I'm sure most of us would want to nominate our hometown hero, Magic Johnson. And both of those were on the list of the top 50. If you're thinking of the greatest player of all time, you, uh, if you're a little older, you might go to Bob Cousy. And the young people say, who? Or, of course, if you're from the present, it's someone like LeBron James. And most probably, many of you don't even care who's on the list. The sports writers, though, and sports enthusiasts debate it, and they do, because people like to put together lists of the best, right? There's the list of the best cars to drive. There's the list of the best places to live, a list of the best appliances to buy. And all of these lists have two things in common. Number one, they're not definitive. And number two, they create controversy. And so I shouldn't be surprised if I find a biblical list that, although it is definitive, still creates some controversy. I'm referring to the list in Hebrews 11 of the great heroes of the faith. I'm a little surprised at who's in and very surprised at who's not mentioned. And you don't need to turn there, but let me just read from Hebrews 11. It's the same portion that Michael read a moment ago. It's as though the passage comes to a close with, in this abrupt list with a, an impetuous summary, hastily written, vibrant with power yet problematic with questions. The writer says, and what more can I say? Verse 32, time fails me to tell you of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, waxed mighty in war, and turned to flight the armies of God's enemies. In other words, if I had a little more time, we could spend talking about each one of these. But when I read that list, I say to myself, David, okay, Samuel, that makes sense. But Samson? Who put Samson on the list? If you ask me, God, I don't think he qualifies. And God says, I didn't ask you. And since I'm not to be over the word, but the word is over me, I must somehow try to understand this because it doesn't. Honestly, it doesn't make sense to me. I've read his story. I know how it ends. But there's a divine reason, and that's what I want to find out this morning. 
how come Samson is on the list of the heroes of the faith? Four chapters are devoted to a story in the Old Testament book of Judges. So let me encourage you to turn there. The Old Testament book of Judges. These are the dark days of Hebrew history. The troublesome times when Israel was faithful and then they weren't. In fact, what we have is actually a cycle that a sequence of steps that is repeated some six times in the book of Judges. And it's a pitiful cycle. It's a tragic sequence. It starts out with sin or rebellion. The people of God disobey God. And because of that sin, God steps in with oppression or suffering. Something takes place. Uh, some enemy comes in and subdues them and oppresses them for a period of years. Then the people cry out to God. This is the time to pray when you're in trouble. And they cry out. And God in his gracious mercy delivers them or restores them. And you think, great, they're back on their feet only to start the cycle again with sin and then punishment and then prayer, and then restoration. Good, we're finally done. No, we're going to go through it six times. How dumb is that? Just as dumb as my life when I get forgiveness and then go right back so stupidly into the same sins. The six cycles, just briefly, briefly on the screen for you, start in the book of Judges, chapter 3, and uh, here you have the oppressor and how many years they were oppressed. And then the judge or the deliverer that God raised up to deliver his people. And as you look at that list, the last judge on the list is Samson. And the last oppressor, the Philistines. And the period of time, the longest oppression of them all, 40 years. Now, these judges were interesting individuals. There were several functions that they, uh, several roles that they played and filled. First and foremost, they were military leaders. This was a time of war and battle, and God was fighting battles for his people and through his people and using these military leaders. But secondly, they were spiritual leaders. They were people of faith and of the Spirit of God. Although exhibiting their devotion to Yahweh in different ways and to various degrees, they were nonetheless spiritual leaders. And finally, they were judicial leaders. Administering justice, they were judges. And yet, the ironic thing is, the land was filled with injustice. Many of you who've studied the Bible are aware of the Repeating mantra, the very last verse of the book of Judges, which is found several times, and it simply says something like this. There was no king in Israel during those days, and everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. Does that sound like America? Now, we have a king, we have presidents, we have leaders, we have officials, but still everyone 
discredits the law of God, most everyone, and they go about doing whatever they want to do. And that was happening in the book of Judges. Well, for this last oppression, which was the longest, you have this invasion, the intruder of the people of the sea coming from the Aegean Sea, ancient Greece, somewhere around 1300 B.C., and coming into uh, uh, the Holy Land, as we call it today, Palestine, because of the name the Philistines. And there is even today the plain of the Philistines, which is kind of in the southern part on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea, where you have cities like Ascalon and Gath and Gaza, still in the news today. Here it's, is the place where the sea people, the Philistines, settled. They were God's instrument of punishment upon God's people who rebelled. And as God used the Babylonians to take Israel into captivity, the northern kingdom, so he now uses the Philistines to bring punishment to his erring people. In answer to their prayers, God raises up a deliverer by the name of Samson. He's a man of mystery. There's an air of the nonsensical about him, the preposterous. He's whimsical, fun-loving, sensuous, arrogant, capricious, vindictive, and his name means sunny. Oh, he had a personality that just wouldn't stop and the charisma to match. But a strange instrument for God to choose, a strange, strange instrument for God to use to deliver his people. I would say, wouldn't it be better to choose a holy man, a God-fearing person, a woman of integrity and character like Deborah? But God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. And let me change that famous poem a little bit. By using men of clay and dust who, uh, whom others often scorn. People that have faults and God uses them. I think along with divine inspiration, the realism of the Bible renders it compelling and relevant today. It's a sign of divine inspiration that God doesn't look over the faults of people, but mentions them, and yet still uses them, which is astounding. So how about this guy, Samson? Why is he a hero of the faith? Well, first of all, let's look at his faith ignited, which begins in chapter 13, and we have the background, verse 1, again, Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. But a certain man of Zorah, which is a town on the western part of Israel, right next to the border of the Philistines who have invaded the land, a man by the name of Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was sterile and remained childless, much like Hannah in 1 Samuel who cried, give me children or I die, and was the mother of Samuel. Or like Elizabeth in the New Testament, who was barren for so many years until older age and became the mother of John the Baptist. So verse 3, the angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, you are sterile and childless, but you're going to conceive and have a son. 
I like what Warren Wiersbe says, when God wants to do something really great in the world, he doesn't send an army, he sends an angel. And he gets far more done. Here the angel announces to the childless the promise of a son. The very thing that they, the very uh, desire of their heart now is being met. But added to the promise is a pattern for his life. Verse 4. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not touch any unclean thing because you will conceive and give birth to a son and no razor may be used on his head because the boy is to be a Nazarite. Now this is not the same thing as a Nazarene. Nazarene is a city. It's uh, the city of Nazareth where Jesus grew up. But a Nazarite is a vow. It's a vow of consecration. That's what the word means. And you'll find the regulations for the Nazarite actually found in the book of Numbers chapter 6. And they're all mentioned right here. No fruit of the vine. No cutting of the hair. And no touching of the dead or the unclean. No fruit of the vine meant uh, no wine, no grapes, no juice. It's not that these things were wrong in and of themselves. It was a lesson in self-denial. No cutting of the hair. That's an interesting one. Because in the New Testament, it says it's a shame for a man to have long hair. But the godly in the Old Testament couldn't cut their hair. That's another problem we can deal with later. But the the fact of the matter is, this was a lesson in self-denial, in the sense of losing your pride. For the long hair would be an obvious mark that this person was distinguished from all others. An external sign that they were consecrated to God, and they would look different, and often be treated different. different. Difficult to keep the long hair neat and clean, and the appearance and the pride then might be lost. And then not touching the unclean seemed like a fairly good rule until one of your parents died and then you couldn't even be close to them and it was a separating of the relationships that were often close because you've now entered into a new relationship even closer, your relationship with God. It's my understanding that Samson ratified this vow that his parents accepted when they were given the promise of a child. But notice there's also a prediction. So a promise and a pattern and a prediction of what he is to do. Last part of verse 5. He will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Some people just start the ball rolling, but they don't complete the course. Samuel will continue the deliverance and David will complete the deliverance from the Philistines, but Samson is going to get it going. I tell you, this man is chosen of God. And so there is some interaction between the parents with the angel that has come. In fact, they even say to him, what is your name? This is verse 17. What is your name? So that we might honor you when the word comes true. By the way, his parents were people of faith as well. They believed what God had said, even though it seemed unbelievable. And the angel responds in verse 18, Why do you ask my name? It is beyond understanding. The Hebrew 
Hebrew word actually means it is wonderful. It creates wonder. The same word is found in Psalm 139 where we talk about the omnipresence of God. Wherever I go, if I go to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. And then the psalmist says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I can't take it in. It's beyond my comprehension. So the NIV is right in saying it's beyond understanding. That's part of the meaning. But the idea is that the angel is saying, my name is wonderful. And when you read Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, the child that's going to be born, the prophet coming whose name is Jesus, his name is Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I think we have every reason to believe that the angel who spoke to Samson's parents was none other than Jesus. A theophany, an Old Testament appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so... We come to the end of the chapter, and we read in verse 24, the woman gave birth to a boy named Samson. He grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in Dan, while he was still in his home. The Spirit of God began to stir him. Two important facts I want you to notice at the end of the chapter. The Lord will bless him, and the Lord and the Spirit will stir him. The blessing of God is what makes a man prosperous and joyous. And the Spirit of God is the one who makes a man holy and powerful. To have the blessing of God and the Spirit of God is to have all you need. And Samson had all of that. In fact, later on, there's going to be a, a deepening of the Spirit's relationship with Samson because we're told three other times that the Spirit of the Lord is coming on him in power. Now I want you to know that the obvious sign of the Nazarite vow, with every vow, with every covenant, there's a token of the covenant. The Noahic covenant is the rainbow. The Abrahamic covenant is circumcision. The token of the covenant for this Nazarite vow is the long hair. Everyone would see that. They may not see you abstaining from the juice and the vine. They may not see you staying away from the unclean, but they will see the long hair. But that's only the sign of his strength. The source of his strength is the Holy Spirit. And his commitment to this vow established by God, embraced by his parents, and in his youth, ratified by Samson, himself. I say his faith has been ignited. But now we get into chapter 14, and we're going to have to look at chapter 14 and 15 rather quickly. But let me just put all of this under the category of faith ignored or, or faith forgotten or faith shoved into a secondary place in his life. It's not that he gave up the faith. It's just that it wasn't dominant. It wasn't primary. Something else was going to lead our friend Samson. 
in the middle part of life, and you notice in verse 1 of chapter 14, he goes down to Timnah, and there he sees a young Philistine woman, and he's already of marrying age. You say, man, I would like to know more about his, his uh, life. How did he respond to his friends? It's a mystery. We don't know. I imagine he was chosen first for the rugby team. But I can't tell you much more about him. I can't tell you how devout he was. I imagine the character we know of Samson was growing and developing during those years. But I also imagine that this consecration, this vow that was upon him, was a demanding restriction and somewhat unwanted. And so we see him in chapter 14 going after a Philistine woman. Verse 2. When he returned, his father and mother said, he said to them, I've seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as a wife. His father and mother said in verse 3, aren't there acceptable women among your relatives, among our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised, the pagans, to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, get her for me. She's the right one for me. Now, it's very interesting. If you would literally translate the Hebrew, it sounds like this. She is right in my eyes. Does that sound like anything you've read before? Everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. She's right for me in my eyes. I'm not concerned about what God says in Deuteronomy 32 or in in Deuteronomy 7, Exodus 32. I'm, I'm not concerned about a law that says I should not marry someone from the uncircumcised. I'm not concerned about my parents' warning. I'm not concerned about the law. I'm concerned about my lust. I'm not driven by principle. I'm driven by passion. And so... Samson, fascinated with the sensual offerings of a city like Gaza, the godless, pleasure-loving city of Gaza, was near his home. (laughs) By the way, it always is. The devil makes sure that there's a city like this near your home, that the temptations are close at hand, and that's where your faith will be tested. So over the law of God and over the wishes of his parents, he goes down and finds a wife and chooses a wife. And then the Bible talks about him coming back another time uh, to see this individual, verse 5. And as he approaches the vineyards of Timnah, now what is interesting in the text is that apparently while going with his parents, they split off. I guess his parents stayed on the main route, but he took a detour by the vineyards. That's an odd place for a man to go who has a Nazarite vow never to drink wine. And as he goes toward the vineyards, he sees a young lion roaring toward him. And the spirit comes upon him, verse 6, and he kills the lion, tears him apart with his bare hands. Oh, that must have been something. And then he goes down to see his fiancée. All in a day work. Sometime later, he comes back to marry her. So the courting process was taking on. And he decides to go back and look at the lion's carcass. This is verse 8. And there is a swarm of bees in the dead carcass. And he scoops out the honey that is there and eats it. 
and he has now violated his Nazarite vow. The violation was in his heart, but now the activity actually takes place where he touches that which is not clean. And then he goes down for the wedding. And there's a wedding feast, verse 12 tells us, that goes on for seven days. And whenever there was a feast, there was always wine. And I think it most probable that he broke the vow again. Although the Bible doesn't say it, my guess is he does. And wanting to take advantage of these Philistines. Now here's something that's rather interesting. The parents were against what he was doing, and what he was doing was not right. But look at verse 4 of chapter 14. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. That doesn't mean that God was sinning or tempting someone to sin. It simply means that God allows people to go their own sinful way to achieve his divine purposes. This was from the Lord. This is how he was going to engage the the Philistines. God can use the wickedness of man to praise him. And that, my friend, is a mystery. It boggles the mind but it happens in your life. So the injustice that you are experiencing is from a sovereign God. And much in your life that is not good has still been allowed by divine providence to work something in your life or through your life to achieve his ultimate purposes. So I think at the feast, he breaks the second part of his vow. So he's touched the unclean thing. Now he's drinking from the fruit of the vine. I tell you, Samson is a giant in strength, but an infant in good sense. Spiritual maturity. The Bible tells us then that Samson continues his fun-loving ways. He puts out a riddle. And he says in verse 14, by the way, the riddle comes from his sin. (laughs) We should never make light of sin. But that's what he does in verse 14. Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. And he says, if you can understand this riddle, then I will give you all new clothes. But if you can't, you've got to give them to me. And no one can understand the riddle. But because there are seven days in the feast, they finally nag his wife Or they threaten his wife. And so she nags her husband and she gets the answer. And then finally, the last day of the feast, verse 18, the men of the town say, what is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? (laughs) And this is one of the most humorous statements in all the Bible. If you had not plowed with my heifer, you you would have not solved the mystery. In other words, if you wouldn't worked on my wife, you wouldn't have gotten the answer. And. So he goes out and kills 30 people from another city to get their clothes to give to the guys he promised. And that's Samson. Violent, vindictive, capricious, sensual. And it continues on in chapter 15. The Bible tells us that uh, Samson comes back to get his wife And finds out that the father has given the girl to another man. 
And so because of that, he attacks the Philistines. And this is where in chapter 15, verse 4, he ties 300 foxes together. That is, ties the tails of two foxes together and couples of 150 and puts a a torch in between the tails and sends them off into the fields and they burn down all the grain of the Philistines. I mean, he could have just taken care of the grain himself, but this is more fun. And so they retaliate. The Philistines can't get to Samson, so they kill his wife and her father. So he has revenge in his heart, verse 7, and he attacks and slaughters an unnumbered amount of people. And then he hides in Judah, and the Philistines go after him there. And the men of Judah, his own people, give him up. They tie him with a rope, and he plays the game. As long as you don't kill me, I'll, I'll go with the Philistines. So the Philistines get him. He breaks the rope, then gets the jawbone of a donkey and kills a thousand men. The Spirit of the Lord came on him, verse 14 of chapter 15. And then another riddle, another play on words. If we could all read the Hebrew in verse 16, we would see it says something like this, with a donkey's jawbone, I made donkeys out of you. With a donkey's jawbone, I made a heat. There's a play on words with the Hebrew. And I've killed a thousand men. But there still is some faith. Look at verse 18. He cries out to the Lord when he's thirsty. I'm your servant. And after this great victory, am I going to die at the hands of the uncircumcised? And God provides supernaturally like he did Moses, water from the ground. So when we get into chapter 16, Samson is still about his same desires. He's on his way back to Gaza. And this time connects with a prostitute. The men of the city hears that he's there. They surround the place where he is, but somehow he gets out. And this is where he picks up the gates of the city. And if you have any concept of how much these gates would have weighed, he puts them on his shoulders and carries them up to a hill. I mean, it's not enough just to leave. He's got to do some damage on the way out. But Gaza had attracted him. Sophisticated, godless Gaza had drawn Samson's attention like a moth to a flame. And he went back time and time again. But sometime later, he fell in love with a woman who wasn't in the city, but in the same valley, and her name was Delilah. By the way, the name Delilah means to weaken or to impoverish. (laughs) And that's what she does. And again, temptation is always near, and there is a Delilah for us all. There is some point of weakness where we are easily fascinated and drawn away, seduced and lured and crushed by temptation if we don't resist. And so the Bible tells us, and this is the story you know also well, the Philistine rulers promised to give a huge sum of money. This is chapter 16, verse 5 to Delilah. If she'll simply find the secret of his strength. And he goes to sleep on her lap after telling her the secret and wakes up and finds that what he told Delilah had happened to him. First of all, it was dried bowstrings and then it was new ropes, probably twine uh, uh, twisted together in a three-fold cord. And he broke that and then it was his hair in a loom braided 
wouldn't you get some idea that this gal's not a great gal? Every time you wake up, the very thing you said was a secret is a thing that she does. But sin anesthetizes people. This wasn't a sudden fall. This was a gradual slide. In the life of a godly person who never abandoned his faith, just pushed it to the back because it was rather inconvenient. And driven now by his passions, a man who is endued with the Spirit at times, but driven by his passions. And then, of course, the final time. And I love, again, the realism of the Bible. She says to Samson, verse 15, chapter 16, how can you say you love me if you don't tell me the truth? Can't you see the tears? (laughs) Can't you hear the voice quivering? You don't love me. And so he says, okay. Verse 17, he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head. I've been a Nazarite since my birth, set apart to God. He never forgot that. He knew who he was. He just, even though he ratified the vow, he didn't follow it. If you shave my head, I'll become like any other man. By the way, I don't think he looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime. I don't think he looked like a muscle-bound weightlifter. Because when the spirit was gone, he was like any other man. He might have been a good specimen, but it was the power of the spirit that made him strong. Shave my head, I'll be like anyone else, as weak as any other man. And so that's exactly what happens. He wakes up, his hair is gone. But notice the last part of verse 19. His strength left him. The vow had been broken now for the third time. You say, well, wait a minute, he didn't shave his head. No, he, has, he, he did everything else but actually shave his head. He told Delilah how to do it, and he spent time on her lap, and the strokes upon his head brought him to the place where he'd given up his vow totally. Verse 20, the Philistines are upon you, Samson, and he woke up from his sleep, and he thought, I'll go out as before, and I'll shake myself free. I've done it every other time. But he did not know that the Lord was not, what? With him. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was not with Samson anymore. He was, but not now. And I think one of the greatest sins of the church of our day is that we are people who know God and know the blessings of his spirit. We know his word. We would call ourselves Christians. We seek to follow his will, but we're so easily led astray. And we give ourselves to our passions. And we say, I'm going to get up, rise up, and do as I've done before. And we don't realize that the Lord has left us. The sin of presumption. I can play with fire and never be burned. He broke his vow. Michelangelo, when he wanted to create a great sculpture depicting strength and integrity, made his wonderful statue of Moses. John Milton, when he wanted to depict in poetic fashion the greatest tragedy of all time, wrote about Samson. And so now without God, 
verse 21, the Philistines seized him. They gouged out his eyes. They took him down to Gaza. The place where he used to frolic is now his prison house. Since the restrictions of the vow seemed too great, he fled to Gaza, and now that is the place where he is imprisoned, bound with shackles and grinding in the prison. What is he grinding? Corn. How ironic is that? This is the guy that burned down all the grain fields. By the way, the national god of the Philistines is Dagon, who is the god of the grain. And so his punishment meets his crime. And he is grinding the corn. And someone has well said, sin, when it takes hold of you, blinds you, binds you, and makes you grind. You become its servant. But there's one final chapter, and it's called Faith Restored. We're covering a lot of territory, but it's all to get to this last part. There's a great feast day for Dagon, and thousands of people are gathered together, and they bring Samson out as a clown, verse 25. Bring out Samson to entertain us. And so he performed for them. The champion becomes a clown. And all the world laughs. Verse 24, our God has delivered our enemy into our hands. By the way, that reminds me of David's sin and what Nathan said to David in 2 Samuel 12. Because of this deed, you've given great occasion for the enemies of God to blaspheme. And when you and I live as though we don't know God, we give the world an opportunity to laugh. We sang about glorifying God. We give them occasion to blaspheme him. But Samson, I think while he was grinding, repented. We do know that his hair began to grow, verse 22, right? But his strength wasn't in his hair. That was only the sign of it. The strength was in his vow. And as he was grinding, there must have been genuine repentance because his strength returned. And I'm more confident to say he repented because this is the only place I can see in all of his life where he might somehow be fit into the list of Hebrews 11. By the way, Hebrews 11 talks about stopping the mouths of lions and from weakness made strong. That could be Samson. His faith is restored. God is a God of hope. By the way, his eyes never came back. Because when you sin, there are consequences to your sin. And God will restore, but he does not always replace the effects of sin. And in the end, he kills more than he did throughout his life. He takes hold of the pillars and pushes them. And the roof comes down with thousands of the leaders of the, of the town. And he begins to deliver the people of God in his final hour. His prayer in verse 28 shows that he's still a person bent on revenge, but it also shows he has great faith in God. Kent Hughes said there was a subterranean substance of faith in Samson. He knew God had given him power to deliver his people, but once blinded, he regained his spiritual perspective, and in a great act of faith, he avenged himself 
and his God. All of that to say, there are two great lessons that come out of his life. And the first one is simply this, it's a warning. You can fall. You can fall big time. Take heed, you who think you stand, lest you fall. And lesson number two, there's a witness. You could be restored. Some of you have already fallen and you've given up hope. God is a God of hope. And the message of Samson and the placement of Samson in this list of heroes proves that it's true. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I read this story and my heart is grieved because it is a story of great tragedy. But my heart is also grieved because I see my soul in this narrative and how easily I can be led astray and be played played the fool to long to go to Gaza and reject the vow I've made. Forgive us as believers of our sin and our godless worldliness And may we renew our consecration to you to be true and faithful to you so that our lives would not cause people to blaspheme but to bless and praise your glorious name. O God of hope, restore our faith today we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.